Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Bring, bring it Hello and welcome back to another episode of the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host today, Jake Jabber, standing for Kev. I think it's final week off, so you should be back next week. Um, if you want to reach the show, you can do it on Twitter at EPL Roundtable or on email, EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi guys, I'm Jim. Uh, I'm the Leicester City fan for the EPL Roundtable. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm here to talk Burnley. I'm a freelance football writer, and you can get me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sports. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. We'll start with the topics. Where we're going to start with Southampton, which is quite nice uh, with Jim on the show, given that historical win on Friday night. It was a remarkable game, five 0 up at half time, gone to win nine nil at Southampton. I think it was the biggest away victory in the Premier League uh, and the joint largest of all time, joint with that Manchester United one over Ipswich. So. Bit of a crazy game, there's a red card as well, which probably helped, but still, even with 10 men, no Premier League team should really be going on to lose 9-0, and the fact that that defeat was inflicted by a team that wasn't Liverpool or Manchester City should, you know, cause concern for Southampton fans. I've seen a few rumours that Ralph Hasenhutl might be the next manager to go, Uh, I guess that sort of makes sense if you're going to lose by that. Do you guys think that he should be the next manager to go, and do you think there's any recovery from a 9-0 defeat? It's a difficult one to come back from. I think not just the scoreline, but like the manner of the result. The head seemed to go down at 1-0 almost uh, because of the double whammy of the goal coupled with the VAR review for the red card for Bertrand. It just seemed that that they just kind of decided that was it. I mean, it was hammering down with rain. It was horrible conditions. But to just give up like that, especially in a home game, was just bizarre. I've never really seen, I've not that I can remember anyway, a team kind of, just visibly give up, like shrugging of collective shoulders and kind of we'll see what happens. And obviously Leicester, a lot of teams in that position, I guess, particularly teams in Europe that are thinking about rotating their squads and stuff and saving uh, star players and, and kind of just holding on to some of their resources for later on in the season would have eased off. But Leicester kind of went for it even more almost. It seemed to, to spare Leicester on. And um, it was... It was a fantastic attacking performance. Obviously, it's quite difficult to judge what you're up against when the fact that you were kind of defending against a non-existent team for a lot of it. Um, in terms of Hassan Hootel, he, he's got a lot to come back from on the back of that, particularly because they play Manchester City next twice, I think once in the Cup and once in the league. Um, so that's a tough uh, outing. By the same token, I can't see them sacking him before that because you don't want a new manager or a kind of interim manager coming into Manchester City um, as your first game. So it may well be that if he can get a performance out of the team against Manchester City, even if you know you don't have to necessarily go there and win, but if you can go there and either take something from the game or show the fight that 
Friday night kind of lacked. Potentially that will get some of the fans back on side. Um, obviously spoke in their in their droves when they were leaving at three or four nil um, on Friday. So he's obviously up against it, but did do a good job with them last season. But they are right down there again this year, and you know that that threat of imminent relegation potentially is going to start creeping up, and that's seen many a manager sacked in November December time. So he's um, he's got a lot of work to do, I think, if he wants to stay in charge. Um, at Southampton for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one. I mean, I'm not one to call for people to lose their jobs, and it's not that long since Hassan Hootel kept Southampton up, and everyone seems to think he's doing a really good job there. Um, but I, I think it is tricky. You lose nine 0 at home, like Jim said, the manner of the defeat. Where I think it's it's probably the worst thing you can say about players, but some of them just weren't trying. That's unforgivable, really. Um, you would have expected a half time for them to get a rocket up them and there's been some sort of improvement, but there just wasn't. Um, so it doesn't look like there's really any fight in that team. Um, I feel a bit sorry for him because I think the recruitment at Southampton is basically coming back to haunt them now. They've sold all their good players year on year on year, bought not very good ones to replace them. Um, they don't have any goals in the team in the minute. They've let someone like Charlie Austin go, who didn't fit into their plans. But Jay Adams, and it's just not worked out for him there. Um, they don't really create chances there. It's tricky. I think it's important to note as well, this, it's not the first time this has happened to them this season. They've conceded three at home to Bournemouth, four at home to Chelsea. It'd have to be a really poor season to concede four at home to Chelsea, obviously. Um, they've had nine, nine this weekend, so... Clearly big, big problems there. Um, I think Jim's got a point in that it's unlikely to be anything imminent just because the games that they've got coming up, you wouldn't expect them to get anything anyway. So it's it's a real case of whether Hassan Hootel can inspire any sort of positive response because performances like that on Friday night are just completely unacceptable. I can't imagine what Southampton fans were thinking watching that because lack of effort was just frightening, really. It's... Minimum expectations is something that Sean Dyche says a lot, is that maximum effort is it's the least you ask from your team, and we just didn't really see that from Southampton. Yeah, I, I think that, that that is a good point uh, on the recent run they have had, because I think that the 9-0 defeat on its own is really, really poor, but when you go back and you see that the, you know they lost 3-1 at home to Bournemouth, which is a game that they perhaps thought they might have been targeting for a win, that then to lose a goal lead at Tottenham um, with 10 men was Tottenham against with 10 men was was a poor result especially when you look at Tottenham's other results that's they're only winning six in the Premier League with the the one against um, Southampton then obviously to, to lose four goals against Chelsea and it, it's a poor run but we had Thomas on last week who who was at the game when Wolves played Southampton and he thought that Southampton actually looked quite good in that game and, and he said that the Romeo and Hoiberg in the middle were as good as anything he'd seen in the Premier League this season in, in central midfield so there's definitely talent there it's just to, to lose that, that amount, amount of goals in one game it's, it's going to be difficult for them to recover especially with back-to-back trips to, to Man City you, you think that there's probably going to be more you know, pain before it gets better. They've got um, the the next two games are, as you say, back to back trips to Manchester City. Then it's the international break uh, after they play Everton at home. So it might well be that they'll see how those City games go 
either make a change that week following the second Manchester City game, which is the league game, um, or maybe that international break after the Everton home game, because you can't really go much further than that without making a change, I think, unless there's some serious improvement. But then it's just lining up who you want. And obviously international breaks are very, very popular for that, for clubs that can get 10 days of of you know recruitment and get someone in by the time they play their next league fixture, essentially, which is Arsenal away um, after the international break. Not the most intimidating game, I guess. Not easy for a new manager if one was to come in then, but also not the worst trip um, in the world, given that they've just come off. They will have come off two games against Manchester City in the last three at that point. So I'll have to uh, wait and see. I certainly think Hassan Hughes will be looking at that international break with plenty of trepidation given their given their performances recently it's, it's strange because he came in with such a, a good reputation and, and those that you know followed his progress in Germany especially with Leipzig still speak of him quite highly and, and think that Southampton perhaps got a coup when they got him in but it, it does seem like a systematic problem with Southampton though they're, they're a club that are always near the bottom it's been the case for two three four seasons now that they had that really good run under Pochettino and Koeman but since then they've struggled um, and they do look prime for relegation to be honest it seems like it, certain clubs just seem to be sleepwalking towards it I know Newcastle one of them with the TY spot but I think Southampton are another uh, and yeah I wouldn't be surprised if they did go it, it, I'm not sure if it's Hassan Hutter I think it's just a, a club-wide problem but as you say Jim it's, it's likely they're going to look to make a change and hope that like it did last season and the season before that sort of sparks a, a revival but you mentioned Arsenal there that, that takes us nicely on to our next topic Arsenal dropping points again today uh, the supporters don't seem too happy with Unite Emery uh, the the tactics and, and the style of football isn't great their biggest threat it seems to be coming from set pieces which is remarkable for a team that are under Arsene Wenger arguably played the best football in the league for, for a decade uh, and now they're relying on set pieces to score goals and they're dropping points constantly in the Premier League they're in fifth position at the moment with 16 points it doesn't look too bad but a lot of the games that they've dropped points they perhaps shouldn't have uh, and there seems to be a lack of ambition and, and that was compounded today by the reaction of Captain Granite Xhaka when he came off he was booed he, he swore at his own fans apparently threw his jacket down it, it wasn't great to see and if that's your captain it does look like things behind the scenes are, are not looking too great what are your guys thoughts on Arsenal this season do you think that the re- do you think Unite Emery is, is a problem and that he's not going to be the right man for the long term? Well, we talked about chronic recruitment issues at Southampton. I think it's probably something you can level at Arsenal as well um, in the way they've gone about their transfer business over the last few seasons. Uh, obviously, I think people were quite excited when Emery came in. Um, you know, what, as what that pub, they probably would have been targeting someone of that caliber with you know european experience uh has won trophies before one of the come from one of the big leagues um in europe and, and brings with him that experience and hopefully potential to take arsenal forward again because they've kind of been sliding backwards um down the table and not kind of really improving from a performance standpoint either um and you know the very very top teams in the league have been getting away from arsenal for years now um it certainly seems that not a lot has changed. I think they're still defensively so susceptible. I mean, they were two nil up today um, against Crystal Palace as we record on the Sunday and dropped back to a two-two draw. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's 
you know, all of a similar age, I guess, growing up when Arsenal were one of the dominant forces at one point uh, in the Premier League and were known for their defensive solidity, for them to be dropping leads like that. Um, and it's not a one-off either. They're so defensively susceptible. I mean, they've got Socrates um, and David Luiz, who both kind of scored today, but they're also part of the Achilles heel of Arsenal at the moment at centre-back. Um, their full-backs can't seem to stay fit for any length of time. Uh, bought Kieran Tierney in from Celtic in the, in the summer and he's barely kind of had a, a run of games. Um, they just look so, so poor, especially away from home. They just look so easy to go up against and kind of teams don't fear Arsenal visiting them anymore. They they kind of see it as a scalp that's virtually achievable because of how poor their away record is. Um, the Xhaka thing today, I guess, just typifies the whole situation. We had the obviously the horrible situation with Ozil and Xhaka early on in the season, or kind of before the first couple of games, where they were they were kept away from the team for their own safety, uh, which is completely understandable. But then Ozil's n- never really made an impact in the team since, and he he's been an issue since before Emery arrived. Um, in the fact that they gave him this huge new contract, and he's barely kicked a ball. Um, for, for your, what's supposed to be your star player to be sidelined for the vast majority of, of that situation since he signed that contract and also for Emery to refuse to be talking about it as well. I mean, obviously, that's his right not to explain it, but it just kind of fuels the fire that there is obviously an issue behind the scenes. Um, and for Xhaka to react like that coming off, you know, he ignores, he completely snubs Emery um, as he comes off the pitch. And it's obviously goes in a, in a bad mood, goes straight down the tunnel, kind of takes his shirt off um, and, and storms off, which I guess he's probably as frustrated as anyone with the, the situation and the way things are going. But ultimately, you know, the results have got to improve on the pitch. Otherwise, what are they expecting? And it is an expectant fan base at Arsenal and everyone makes the Arsenal fan TV jokes. But I mean, a lot of those fans will expect a level of success that hasn't been there for the past few years. And something's got to change. If if it's not on the pitch, then Emery's going to be the one to, to be replaced in the, the not-too-distant future. He certainly hasn't got anywhere near the uh, the star power that um, Arsene Wenger had in that boardroom. I'm sure they wouldn't hesitate to make a change if they thought it was kind of getting to a desperate situation where they were really out of the, the Champions League race and staring down the barrel of another potentially, you know, Europa League season or even worse, missing out on that if their away form doesn't improve. Yeah, I think it's, um, I hate this phrase, but they're clearly a club in transition at the minute. Um, and I think there's probably parallels to Manchester United when Alex Ferguson retired and he left the same sort of chasm um, at the top of the club. There's a real lack of leadership, I think, at Arsenal. Um, Emery doesn't really feel like an, an inspirational figurehead. Um and you can argue that Arsene Wenger got too long and he should have maybe gone two, three years earlier. But I think people still played for Arsene Wenger and had that sort of the reputation that people could admire and you were inspired by the things that he's won. Um, I think Emery's a funny one. Obviously, he won all those Europa League titles at Sevilla, went to PSG and... I don't think he did that good a job at PSG, really. They sort of won what you'd expect them to win. Didn't really make any progress in Europe. Um, and I was a bit surprised he got the Arsenal job, to be honest. Um, he doesn't seem to communicate well. Obviously, he's been in English football now, coming on to 18 months. His grasp of English doesn't seem great. I mean, it's better than my Spanish, but I'm not working in 
Spain, trying to talk to people in Spain. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he's um, he's at risk of becoming a bit of a figure of fun, really, when he starts these interviews with Good Evening. He's, he's, I think people are starting to laugh at him, and I don't think that's a good position for any manager to be in. Um, but I think Jim was right to highlight the recruitment. Obviously, spent big this summer on Nicolas Pepe. Not really worth type him. He doesn't look anything like the sort of quality player you would expect for the massive fee that they spent on him. But they're not really set up to suit his game. At Lille, Pepe strengthens all transitions and playing on the break. Arsenal haven't really traditionally played like that. And they don't seem to be playing like that under Emery. It's difficult to see what the plan is. I think that's what's frustrating Arsenal fans as much as anything. They don't have any, again, I hate this phrase as well, but they don't have the philosophy. Um, I think earlier in the season when there were getting results, you can get away with that. I think in some ways it's good to be flexible and be able to win matches in different ways. But they're so porous at the back. Like Jim says, seems like Palace, they think they can go to Arsenal and get results, and that's because they can't. Arsenal can go 2-0 up in the first 10 minutes, and you still think you can get a result because they can't defend. Um, I like David Lees. I think he's a, a good defender, and I think it's unfair the way he gets treated as a bit of a joke figure, but I think he sort of sums up where Arsenal are at now, that they needed to rely on someone like that to be a leader. You look at the great Arsenal teams of the past, there's captains like Tony Adams and Patrick Vieira, sort of titans of the Premier League era. And you look at a granite shacker now and you think, how on earth is he captain of any football club? I mean, we all know the story about when he was a kid, he had the key to the house or something because he was the responsible brother. It just seems like an utterly ludicrous reason to... Just kicked anyone else that had tried to take the key <laughs> off him, probably. Yeah, exactly. But this this is a story that keeps getting trotted out when people question Shaka's leadership skills. Even though you only have to watch him on the pitch to see that he isn't a leader. He doesn't lead by example. He makes terrible mistakes at bad times makes awful decisions as we've seen today where he's swearing at his own fans. I think it's a bit of an unsustainable situation with Shaka as captain, to be honest. I don't know what they were playing at making him captain. Apparently they had this vote in the dressing room which isn't uncommon in itself but English football is a bit suspicious of this sort of leadership group thing that Emery's brought to Arsenal. The likes of one person who's in charge, sets the tone, this is how it is, keeps everyone in line. Um, and I think the Ozil situation, again, I think Jim's absolutely right with that. I think if you're paying someone that much money, what is it, £350,000 yeah, a week? Something like that. That's like a squad for probably half of the Premier League teams. Their whole squad is probably on that sort of money. And for, for them to have a player earning that and not getting on the pitch, it seems absurd. I think Emery's almost got a responsibility to get more out of Ozil. And on his day and I know it's an on-his-day thing because he is so inconsistent and sometimes it looks like he doesn't fancy it. On his day, he's still one of the best playmakers in world football. You would think if you get Ozil feeding Aubameyang and Lacazette and Pepe, you would think that's a formula for a devastating attack, but Emery seems reluctant to even try it. Um, I suppose playing four attackers at once would probably make them even worse at the back, but it seems strange that he's not even had a go at that. Um, So yeah, in summary, I've never been particularly sold on Emery um, but I suspect anyone coming in to replace Arsene Wenger is going to have a lot of the same problems I wouldn't be surprised if they make a change and they become sort of like a Chelsea where it's 
no regular weather change managers every 18 months, every two years, because they're looking for that stability and success. And realistically, they've had one manager who's taken them to a brand new level, and they've got to try and find someone who can do a similar job. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I think the Ozil situation is even more baffling than the Chaka situation when you think that Emery's named him as one of his vice-captains and the, one of the main criticisms being, being levelled at him by supporters is the lack of creativity in open play and he's got a player sat there doing nothing who's uh, openly said in interviews in the last few weeks that he doesn't want to leave Arsenal, he's happy in London. Um, I'd be happy on 350 exactly. grand a week sitting on the bench as well. Exactly. If anybody out there wants to pay me 350 grand a week to sit on my backside, I'm more than happy to take them up for that. Exactly. He's, he's not going to be going anywhere. That's the point. And he needs to, as Jamie said, make something better of the situation. And he's just not doing that. I think ultimately that's going to be what maybe costs him his job uh, with the board. And they're going to look at it and, and think we're paying this player so much money and, and this man's not going to use him. From Ozil's point of view, he's presumably thinking now, I can just wait this out. His contract lasts longer than Emery's going to last at Arsenal. He might outlast another two Arsenal managers at this rate because he got a new deal long ago. And the the lifespan of an Arsenal manager can't be much more than about 12 months at the moment. Uh, Emery's not even got that long on the current clock. So uh, there's every chance he just sits there and waits it out. But, you know, if his mind's made up, what else are you going to do? You're not going to move him on because no one's going to pay him the ludicrous amount of money. You're going to be in an Alexis Sanchez situation where Manchester United can't get rid of one of their highest paid assets because it's become a huge liability. No one will pay you any money to, to take him away. Do you think realistically there's anybody who could come in tomorrow and be better than Emery? Or, or do you think they're, they're going to be stuck in this situation that Manchester United are in and, and just hiring? Yes. They're still stuck with a squad that can't defend, and there's probably that's very, very difficult to fix in one transfer window normally because the selling teams are so. I mean, it's probably a good parallel with Manchester United, as James says. When Sir Alex Ferguson left, he left this gaping chasm of leadership and also stability within the club. And United since have just turned into this. They've basically turned into Chelsea. They've just sacked a manager every twelve nine, 18 months, however long they get in each position, even Jose Mourinho. And they've just lurched from the the anointed one in David Moyes to the supposedly safe pair of hands in Louis van Gaal, then to Jose Mourinho. Then they knee jerked with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when he won a few games because he wasn't Jose Mourinho. And you could see Arsenal doing the same thing because they're going to struggle to fix the fundamental problems that exist within that squad. If that squad was any more top heavy, they'd just fall over. Like they've got, and ironically, they've not got their most creative player 
setting foot on the pitch, but they still can't defend. I mean, it doesn't matter. They are going to have to win every game 3-2 or 4-2 because they just can't keep teams out. It's, it's an impossible way to, to run a club because it's just going to come back and bite you in the backside, especially if you're, you have ambitions to be a top four club. You just can't. You can't get there unless you've got some element of stability at the back. It's just, it's nigh on impossible, especially with their rank away from. Yeah, and I think hiring managers at Arsenal, it's, it's exactly the same as at Man United. They've now got the sort of boardroom where they haven't had to do it. Like, they don't know, they don't know how to do it. They've not had to before. They've had the same manager for 20 years. No one in that boardroom knows how to actually go about finding a manager, how to get the right one. There was a lot of stuff about Mikel Arteta before Emery got the job. Seemingly, Emery outperformed the interview. Um, Seemingly because he'd actually coached a football team before in any meaningful spell, well, yeah, essentially. Yeah. You would have thought Arteta would have brought like a game plan and there would have been the Arsenal, sort of, the Arsenal way and the yeah. traditional like, style and it would have been sort of you'd have been able to draw a straight line between the Wenger team and the Arteta team, whereas the change with Emery now it just seems all over the place, and you wonder what the overall plan is for that football club at the minute. I, don't know. I think if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd be quite worried at the minute because managerial appointments are hard. The Emery one's probably not worked out, but you could appoint someone who doesn't need the worst job. You just never know. It's always going to be a risk and a gamble. There's no such thing as a sure thing. Just look at Mourinho at Man United. They thought they were getting guaranteed success. Wins absolutely everywhere. Didn't work out. Sometimes it just doesn't. Yeah, I think that's a, that's probably what's going to keep Emery in a job in, in the, the board. are probably going to look at the, the table now. Arsenal yeah. on six, 16 points. They got to a Europa League final last year. You look at what Tottenham are doing now and you look at Manchester United, you know, it could be worse. Um, he's he's not noticeably doing an awful job, um, but you can see why supporters are getting frustrated at it. At it. He's just sort of par for the course, I'd say. Maybe a little bit under par, but he's doing an okay job and, and that's probably what's going to keep him in it um, for the foreseeable future anyway. Uh, but just moving on to our final topic quickly, I just quickly uh, got this story this week uh, of the Premier League planning for the 2022 World Cup, which seems to be going ahead in Qatar, which is going to be a disaster. But the, the current plans or the draft plans are that um, there's only going to be a, an eight-day break um, before the, the finals actually start. So there's going to be a Premier League round the fixtures on the 12th and then the tournament starts on the 21st of November uh, and then the, the final is going to be played on the 18th of December and then the, the Premier League restarts again up on Boxing Day or that that's what they're going with at the moment. Um, how What are your guys' thoughts on that? Do you think that obviously the World Cup was always going to cause these sort of problems if they were going to go for the Winter World Cup but that seems like a ludicrously small amount of time um, for clubs to, to deal with players going off to the World Cup um, and then coming back and getting them up to speed for a Premier League fixture, it seems like uh, it is going to cause all sorts of problems. And it could be those clubs that don't have as many internationals that really benefit from that. Um, do you think there's a better way around it? Or do you just think that it, it was always going to cause these problems? And it's probably best to get the football played as quickly as possible to, to prevent it going too far into the summer um, after the World Cup. That season is just going to be carnage. Um the whole issue with having a winter world cup is that especially in england i mean it's bad enough that we don't have a winter break um in terms of you know giving players time to rest up let alone to add two domestic cup competitions into it and then 
um, to, to add a World Cup in the winter into the situation as well. Um, I just don't see how... I mean, in a standard international break situation, you might play on the Sunday. Every team plays at the latest by the Sunday afternoon. And then the first European kind of qualifying game is normally Thursday. So that's four days. You're talking about double that being the start of a World Cup. I mean... It, it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, and the way that you see, I know it's not quite the same because it's at the end of a, a season, but there are some players who play at international tournaments or get to finals that don't even make it back for the first game of the season, you know, domestically, um, because England's season starts ludicrously early again. So if if you've got a player that's played a quote-unquote normal first few months of the season, then goes away to Qatar and gets to the final, for example, um, that player's not going to be, well, could theoretically come back and play in the sense that it's only like having a week off from another another game. But you're going to see towards the end of the season, I just don't know how teams are going to manage it. The way that you are, obviously the, the clubs aren't there to support the country, uh, the national teams, um, and vice versa. So that kind of, you kind of at odds with what's best for the player because the national team will want their best players available so will the club, but those two can't coexist together in that sense because that scheduling so ludicrous um, and potentially puts this massive impact on players that, you know, heaven forbid anybody suffers this these injuries. But you talk about players being in the red zone because of the sheer amount of football that they're playing uh, from an injury perspective and how much more likely they are to pick up a, you know, a non-contract injury, uh, like a strain or a tear. And it just seems like you're, you're playing with, with fire, with, what is essentially, you know, one of the leading sports leagues in the world and some of the most valuable assets in the world. It just seems completely ludicrous, all for the sake of an election that wasn't above board uh, in terms of who got the the bid in the first place. Um, Yeah, it just seems like they're following through with a stupid idea just because the decision's made now and it's been proved to be the wrong call, but they're just going to do it anyway because, you know, that decision's made and we'll just go on with it. I could make parallels to another political decision that's been made <laughs> in the UK fairly recently, but it does just seem like they're just kind of head down, carry on, um, which just seems utterly ludicrous to me. And I hope that it's, I hope they change their minds, but I can't see it happening because once people get into the mold of it, they'll just drip feed information out like this and it will become the accepted norm within a couple of years. And then everyone will just be left to deal with it at the time. And that, that'll be that. Yeah, it, it is very Brexit. Um, I, I wouldn't actually, even though the World Cup is now getting closer, I still wouldn't be that surprised if there is a change. Um, I think Qatar's just been such a disaster, and I, all the people, the poor people who died building the stadiums and things, at least immoral, almost have the World Cup in Qatar. I still wouldn't be too surprised if there were eventually strips and like some sort of stopgap choice. Um, was made and then it moved back to the summer. It wouldn't surprise me at all if that happened. Um, it, it's the players I feel sorry for. And you can say, like, these guys have paid a lot of money. It's just doing their jobs. They should crack on with it. But like Jim says, these guys are going to be at risk of getting injured. You're asking them to push their bodies to the absolute limit. Um, guys who are playing for sort of Champions League, Europa League clubs, they're going to be playing 50 55 games that season if the clubs go well in cup competitions as well so you're asking so much of these guys um international managers as well i can't imagine they're going to be impressed saying you'll get your players a week before the world cup starts how on earth are you supposed to work on 
tactics and getting your team gelled in that sort of short space of time, it, it spells disaster really for their chances of having any sort of team stability, which probably points to it being a bad World Cup. And believe it or not, the World Cup's going to be rubbish, which is a disappointment for all football fans who love the World Cup. Um, I don't necessarily have a better idea for how to do it with having the Winter World Cup. I think it's inevitable that it's going to cause a mess. Um, but yeah, it does seem like a very, very short space of time between league football and a World Cup. I think if they're going to have the World Cup in November, December, European leagues just have to accept that and clear some time so that we can actually have a proper World Cup. Otherwise, the tournament's going to be bad. Players are going to be knackered. By the end of the domestic seasons, there's going to be a lot of players injured just pushing themselves to the absolute limit. And I don't think it's really fair to ask them to do that. You're playing at the World Cup, it should be the pinnacle of your career. It shouldn't be something where you're worrying about getting injured because you've just played too much football and you're not having a chance to prepare properly for an event like that. It's, it, I, I don't think it's fair. The Premier League as well, I mean, they could help, they could alleviate some of the issue here by being a bit more creative with their scheduling. And they're taking the same attitude as FIFA are of just head down, business as usual because it's their product and they don't want to see that tarnished. And obviously there are huge TV deals and stuff that um, kind of weave into that. And obviously being back on Boxing Day is like a very um, kind of the British Boxing Day trip to the football is really, really um, kind of textbook in that in that kind of environment. But just for one year, can we not think about a logical solution here that involves some kind of break, which helps them? Because... The problem is the Premier League are all dealing with the short term. It's like, how will this affect one year of TV money or whatever? But you've got to think about the product long term. And that's what no one seems to be doing um, in this situation. It just seems like everyone's out for themselves. They probably are all out for themselves. No one's working cohesively together to try and find some kind of acceptable solution to this ridiculous kind of issue in the first place. Um, But that kind of thing will just exasperate the problem yes it's not the Premier League's fault that Qatar have been given a World Cup and it's impossible to host one there in the summer that's that's not their fault but they could help the situation by being a bit more creative with the scheduling and maybe building in some time where players get released a couple of weeks before the tournament and don't necessarily have to be back until maybe the new year to give players time to recover and then just shuffle the schedule accordingly because it's going to make for better football in that season anyway um, it just seems like they're in it, uninterested in doing that, and that just seems counterproductive to me. Yeah, I, I think I agree on on a lot of what you've both said as well. That the I think that bothers me about it a little bit. It, it, as you say, coming back to play on Boxing Day, um, say if a, a Kevin De Bruyne um, gets to the final of the World Cup with Belgium, then he's expected to be back um, on the 26th, playing a Premier League game, say if he loses that final, the emotional toll, as well as the physical one, it's going to be to get yourself back on track to, to try and win a title if you've lost a World Cup final the previous week. is going to... I just don't understand how players are going to cope with that. So it could, it could, It's probably going to be, strangely, the top clubs for one suffering for, for this. Normally, they're the ones that benefit from, from any sort of administrative situation but it's going to be difficult and it might even lead to 
if a country doesn't qualify for a World Cup, um, their players the previous summer are going to be the ones that everybody wants because they're going to be the ones that are not going out to Qatar and they're going to be the ones that are available for training during that. And it, it, it could lead to a lot of weird situations that are completely avoidable. And I think that hopefully FIFA sees sense and it, it, they do take it away from Qatar because I can't see it working out well at all. But if they go ahead with it, the Premier League need to need to sort of, yeah, put the players and, and the clubs first for once and, and not the, the TV deal because I think it it's not... As Jamie said, it's not going to lead to a good World Cup, but it's probably not going to lead to a good club season either. It's just could be a terrible year of football if it doesn't, you know, get planned out properly. Um, but moving on to to topics for our guests this week, uh, we'll start with Leicester. We've we spoke about them a little bit earlier. The nine nil win, record breaking win. I, I guess you're happy, Jim, with that. And in third place after ten games, twenty points. Um, it's shaping up to be a really, really good season for Leicester. Um, where do you sort of see this team in comparison to the title-winning team? I think it's a question that's going to be asked a lot, and it's an easy one to ask. But after 10 games, I think you can look at this current team and, and make an argument that it's even better than that one that did go and win the title a few seasons ago. Yeah, I think I think player for player, um, you could probably make that argument. And I don't think you would find many detractors from that at the moment because obviously Leicester are doing well. Uh, and it was a question that Sky posed actually to some of the fans outside the ground um, at Southampton in their pre-match build-up to, to the game. Um, and a lot of fans were saying exactly the same. You know, this is a better team as as one entity. I mean, it's difficult because football doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a fluid thing. And obviously Leicester did really well to win the league that year. It, it also coincided with a lot of the top clubs underperforming massively. Um, you know, the likes that we weren't, up against a Liverpool or a Manchester City in their current guys that are going to get 90-odd points in a season. Uh, you know, And that mean, that doesn't necessarily mean, just because it's a better team now than it was then, it doesn't mean that we've got any kind of ambition to, to win the league or any kind of realistic ambition, should I say, because you've got those two absolute juggernauts that are just going to slug it out. I know Manchester City have dropped points and stuff, but they're still a ridiculously talented team. Um and Liverpool just proved again today with, you know, a come-from-behind win that they're the best team in the country um, at the moment. The team, player for player, is probably better as a kind of unit, but we're also, we also did have N'Golo Kante in our ranks at that point, who, for me, is the best defensive midfielder in the world um, and was just flying so low under the radar that nobody really fully appreciated what he could do before he left um, and went on to do it for France and went on to do it for Chelsea and helped them win a title. So... It's um, it's one of those funny things that although it might be a better team, uh, a quote unquote better team, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get anywhere near the level of success. That said, I don't see a lot to be scared of outside that top two in the league this year. Um, I think we've already talked about Arsenal, but then Chelsea, Spurs, they don't look like the fearsome forces of, of previous years in their various kind of guises, I guess. Um, so there's every reason for Leicester to be confident that because we haven't got European football um, and we've seen what that's done to Wolves in the early part of this season, it's just sapping energy and planning and issues around fitness and rotation. It just adds that extra layer of complexity to your league campaign, whereas Leicester have normally a week to prepare um, it just means that we could target the domestic cup competitions, I think, especially, and, you know, hopefully be a, you know, we harbour hopes certainly of getting back into Europe this year, uh, especially with 
as I said, those teams that are in Europe not looking particularly fearsome um, outside the top two. Jamie Vardy uh, and Madison and T. Elements are the ones I often see getting all the praise uh, on social media and being pinpointed as the key men for this Leicester team. But a player that I've been really impressed with this season, especially in the uh, the last few weeks since he played us, um, so it's Harvey Barnes. He's, he's been getting a lot of assists. He seems to have really taken his game on since that West Brom spell. I, I saw him a lot in the championship and he, he was obviously a class above that level and now he's settling into the Leicester team. Do you think that he is now sort of cementing his place as a first team and do you think that the, the spot on the left wing is his to lose or or do you think over time that Damari Gray could come back in, into the team and, and maybe take that spot off him? Harvey Barnes is doing exactly what we expected Damari Gray to do um, when he came in. He showed similar flashes of potential and it's more just a case of Barnes is actually fulfilling that um, and we've had Damari Gray is a difficult one because he still has those flashes occasionally. He just doesn't follow up on them often enough. And that's just going to mean it's a substitute. And the great thing about Barnes is as as much as he's shown a lot of good um, signs in the last, well, certainly the first couple of months of the season, he struggled a little bit coming back into the team in January when we recalled him on loan last year, um, which is only logical. I mean, going from the Championship to the Premier League, especially at that young age, is a really, really difficult transition, especially when I'm guessing he was comfortable in that role at West Brom. Um, He was helping them run the team. He was shining every week. And then he goes into a Premier League team um, who, you know, who cancelled his loan move because they feel they need him. Um, that's a difficult situation and this year he's just gone from strength to strength and he's so creative and he's so much different to a lot of other players that we've got on our squad that he offers us something quite unique Um, and the best thing about him is that we don't know how good he can be yet Um, because he's still so young and so inexperienced we don't know where his kind of peak's going to be and that's that's fantastic to watch as a Leicester fan because every time you, you sit down and watch him you looking forward to seeing what he can do because you don't know where his ceiling is and whereas a lot of players you kind of know what to expect and sometimes it's brilliant sometimes it's you know not so good but with him he could be anything and that's fantastic especially as an academy product that's come through um you know Leicester's not the famed academy of some teams we don't have the history of like a Southampton for example selling on ream after ream of really really talented youth player but in Hamza Chowdhury and Harvey Barnes Andy King is through that stage now but he was an academy product that made it big in the first team um you know it's nice to have some of those guys in Chilwell as well um it's just local connection to the club as well players that have been in the youth ranks and come through and yeah Barnes is just the latest of those prospects and he's just really really exciting to watch uh, and yeah, coming on to you now, Jamie and Burnley at the weekend uh, lost to Chelsea 4-2. It's a strange one to watch because watching it as a, as a neutral, I actually thought that Burnley played quite well in the game um, and probably created the better chances, especially in the first half. They created a, a couple of really good chances that on another day you'd expect them to take. Uh, Ashley Barnes, especially at one in the first half, that normally he would score. Uh, do you sort of come off of that game Slightly positive, uh, especially when you know you saw Southampton on Friday. They capitulated, uh, and Burnley's reaction to, to going forward down was the opposite of that. I know you know you come to expect it from Burnley and Sean Dyche. They're never going to give up a game. But I actually thought you played quite well, and, it, and there was a, a lot of positives to take going into the more winnable games coming up. 
Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to be too positive when you've conceded four at home, but you're absolutely right. I think the, the last 10 minutes showed what Burnley are about, really, that we, we played to the end and we didn't give up at any point. We're always determined to try and take something from it. Um, and I think you're right. I think the first half, Burnley played really well. I was really happy with the performance. It's just two poor defensive mistakes have been punished by Christian Pulisic and when you play players of that quality, that's what can happen. You can't give the ball away in your own half because the chances are the opposition will make you pay it, and that's exactly what happened. Um, in the first half, I don't think Chelsea had played well. They hadn't really created anything, really, and it looked like they were sort of running out of ideas before Matt Walton gave the ball away. People said just, just run down the other end and scored. Um, and you're right, we created really good chances. Barnes missed the sitter at was that 1-0, so... If that goes in, then it could be a different game. Um, but yeah, it, it was a bit of a strange one because you don't really think about Burnley's sort of team that give away those cheap goals, but it has happened a couple of times this season. Similar mistakes sort of in the Liverpool game when we lost that one where we'd acquitted ourselves reasonably well but just been let down by individual errors at, at bad times. There's not really much you can do about that. I suppose the pressure of playing a top team when you're more unfancied is that these mistakes are maybe going to be more common because the attackers can just punish you and then you don't want to give the ball away, but then the pressure of knowing that you can't afford to give the ball away makes it more likely that you give the ball away. Um, so maybe there was a bit of that going on. Uh, but I think the response was good. When we went 1-0 down, I think we had... Our best period in the game, we caused Chelsea an awful lot of problems. We had 10, 15 minutes where we were quite dominant. Should have scored at least once in that time. Um, Chelsea didn't really cope with our set pieces that well at all. So I think there are positives you can take. It's just we've given away goals that you, you just can't really afford to do against teams of that quality. And that's, that's what costs us the game in the end. Just silly mistakes at the back from and players, um, James Sarkovsky and Matt Walton, who, they don't tend to make mistakes at all, so it was really surprising that it was those two were at fault. Uh, a player that impressed for Burnley at the weekend, he's been impressing for, for most of the games that I've seen you guys play this season, was Dwight McNeil, obviously he got a goal. Seems to be quite consistent with getting just assists dotted through the games as well. He, he doesn't seem to drop down a level, which is quite impressive for a 19-year-old. It, is it performances like that would, would make you slightly worried of, of losing him, or do you think that he, he's still going under the radar? Because for me, he doesn't get the sort of the exposure and the publicity that perhaps he deserves at being 19 years old and, and performing like he is in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a massive fan of Dwight McNeil, and I've been raving about him since his first game for us, really. Um, it is a bit surprising that he's not more high-profile. Um, I think that's possibly partly due to the fact that he does play for Burnley, the sort of an unshowy team, don't tend to make a lot of headlines. Um, but he's piling up the assists. I saw stats today that he's got four, I think, in the Premier League this season. There's only one player in the Premier League got more this season. That's Kevin De Bruyne. He's got nine. Four is the next best. So um, I'm not saying he's as good as David Silva, but that's what the statistics say. <laughs> so, yeah, it's actually a strange one on Saturday because... I've got such high expectations of Dwight McNeil and I, I didn't think he played that well in that game. I've certainly seen him play better. 
he got into a lot of very good positions and his crossing wasn't as consistent as normal. Normally, once he gets into those positions, the delivery from wide areas is phenomenal. Um, but he seemed to have Aspilicueta on toast and didn't really punish him with his balls into the box. So I think when he looks back at the team, probably be a bit disappointed that he didn't make more of those opportunities. Um, but we saw with his goal something that I think he can add to. He's got game, it's the first time he scored this season. He's the sort of player who needs to be getting into the box when we're attacking on the other side. He needs to be shooting from range because he's dangerous on both feet. Um, and he needs to be sort of targeting probably half a dozen, eight goals in the league this season. Um, in terms of his future, I think it's inevitable that players will aggro Burnley. We're unlikely to be able to establish ourselves as a club that can keep hold of talents like that. Certainly not going to be able to pay the wages of most other Premier League clubs. We don't have rich owners who can dish out these contracts. So um, long term, his future probably lies away from Turfmore. I think that's fine. We've seen players outgrow the club, as it were. Jay Rodriguez obviously did that back in the day, and he's back now because the club's sort of caught up. Danny Ains also left the club, and now look, he's playing for a team that might get relegated this season. So I think the growth of the club has proven that players who leave don't necessarily go on to bigger and better things, and I think McNeil should have that in mind. But someone like Michael Keane, who left the club to go and make his fortune and do brilliantly at Everton and play for England, he's been a bit of a disaster for Everton, I think most Southampton fans would say, and he's played for England and England fans hate that he plays for England. So, um, the grass isn't always greener. I think that Burnley's got consistency, he's going to play every week, he started every league game this season, I think. Um, and we know what we're going to get from him. But I think he will continue to get better. I'm excited to see what he does. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's inevitable that maybe two, three years from now he's playing for a top club because I think he's, he's that good. He's got that much potential. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a shame if he didn't go on and show that uh, a sort of Champions League level club. Yeah, I think he's he's definitely got that potential. Um, and just looking at his stats from yesterday, I know you mentioned his crossing wasn't that great, but in terms of, passing he only misplaced one pass in the game which is yeah that's incredible for for a player in a game against Chelsea especially um for a club that isn't renowned for keeping possession and I'm sure he's probably topping those sort of ball retention stats in the Burnley team so he's obviously a huge talent uh, and it hopefully does stay at Burnley for a while because that seems to be the best place for him going forward uh but we are running out of time so we'll just move on to match previews before we wrap up um We'll start with you, Jim. You've got a game in the League Cup where me and Jamie do not have that game, so we'll start there. Um, Burton away looks a, a winnable game, and do you think, you know, with the other fixtures in the Cup, uh, four of the top six going up against each other, do you think that there's a real chance for Leicester to go on and, and maybe even pick up a trophy? Yeah, I think it's one of the areas that Brendan Rodgers would have been uh, expected to improve on. Um, quite markedly compared to the Claude Puel days because we managed to get through by hook or by crook to like a quarterfinal stage in a Carabao Cup a couple of times and then we'd play a rotated second team against Manchester City at home. I think it was two years in a row we did that and we lost on penalties on both occasions and that just feels like such a big missed opportunity when you're not in Europe um, to target those competitions and like you say, the, the fixtures, the way the draw has panned out for this one kind of helps the uh, non-Big Six teams, I guess, because so many of those those big teams are playing each other in the next round. Um, so 
Burton's a local game for us. We played them a lot in pre-season, so it'll be a kind of good test of where our... I don't expect us to go full team, but I think we'll be fairly strong with a few changes. Um, and I think it'll be a good test of some of those fringe players to prove what they're, you know, what they're about. Because if you've got the constitution to come in and, and show what you can do on what's probably going to be a wet Tuesday or Wednesday night in Burton um, compared to a big glamour tie in the Premier League, then, you know, it will stand you favourably for the rest of the season, particularly coming into Christmas when it's going to be busy and there's going to need to be some rotation. Um, But then, you know, Rodgers might completely surprise us and go all out for it because it is one of the areas we'll want to improve on and there's there's no reason we can't go quite deep in that competition, especially with the way the draws kind of panned out. Yeah, moving on to... Burnley now, Jamie, you haven't got a game in the League Cup, but you go on to next weekend, away to Sheffield United, uh, Chris Wilder going up against Sean Dyche, two managers that I think are unfairly pigeonholed as, as typical British managers, when both probably offer a lot more than that. How do you see that one going, and are you confident you can go to Bramall Lane and, and pick up some points? Yeah, it's an interesting one this. Obviously, Sheffield United have, have been brilliant so far this season, and picked up results that most people probably wouldn't have expected them. I certainly thought they were going to be struggling. Um, but Wilder's doing an, an amazing job there. They're a really inventive team. People who don't watch them talk about like them being scrappy and northern and work hard and all this rubbish that people just say about teams that are led by British managers. We've had exactly the same sort of crap said about us, to be honest. Um, so it will be interesting to see who comes out on top because I think we'll probably give them completely different test to anyone else that they've played in the Premier League this season. We'll maybe rely on our physicality a bit more and it'll be down to them to see if they can cope with that. We'll try and test them on set piece and things like that. So whereas they've they've had results against teams like Arsenal where they've perhaps been able to expose their soft underbelly, we don't necessarily have one, um, despite having just conceded four goals at home. So um I think it's going to be really interesting, actually, to see how, how they cope against us and how we cope against them because they'll certainly cause us problems as well. Um, they'll look at Burnley at home as a sort of game where they can get a result and try and move up the table again away from trouble. That's sort of a way game that we'll be looking at to try and win. So hopefully both teams will be going full power and it won't be sort of cagey and boring. I think it, it could be quite interesting tactically. Um, hopefully it'll be an entertaining game, but I certainly expect us to, to get something from that because I think in terms of player quality overall, we're obviously more established in the Premier League. We've nailed upgrade in a few positions, so I think on paper our team is probably better than theirs and hopefully that will, will prove out in the, the game itself. Yeah, and with that, we are now out of time, so thanks so much, both of you, for joining me today. If you'd just like to tell people where they can reach you, now will be a good time. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'm Jim. You can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Always a pleasure. I'm Jamie Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sport. And I've been your stand-in host today. You can get me on Twitter at Jake Chapman with two Ns. Uh, I write for various places that I will post on there. Uh, you can get the show at EPR Roundtable on Twitter. We'll have a championship show coming up this week as well, so check that one out. But with that, I'd just like to thank you guys for listening and we hope you join us again next time.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.